Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm talking with David Lesh, author of the new book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. Through the experience gained during his many trips to Syria and numerous meetings with Bashar al-Assad, Lesh is able to provide an explanation of how Assad has been able to stay in power through numerous crises prior to the 2011 uprising. He analyzes Assad's transition from reluctant president to self-proclaimed savior of Syria and ultimately brutal dictator. While Assad is commonly thought of as merely another Arab tyrant who is soon to fall, Lesh's unique experience interacting with various members of the Assad regime, including Bashar al-Assad and his wife, enable him to portray the Syrian president in a three-dimensional manner. His description of Assad isn't meant to excuse the atrocities he's committed, but rather to provide an understanding of the motivations behind Assad's actions. As Lesh explains in the interview, the fall of the House of Assad isn't meant to signify that the regime has, or even soon will, be toppled, but rather to illustrate that Assad has lost his mandate to govern. In the eyes of Lesh and many millions of Syrians, Bashar al-Assad has fallen from being the great hope he once was. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. If you could, uh, could you start out by telling us a little bit about your academic background and what led you to write this book? Well, uh, I received my uh, uh, bachelor's degree from uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and it was there that uh, I really got interested in the Middle East in the late 70s, early 80s, because there was a lot going on then, as there is now, uh, with the you know, the Iranian Revolution, the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So I kind of just migrated over into Middle East studies, and, uh, and then from where, there, I went to Harvard University to get uh, advanced degrees, MA and, and PhD. And then, uh, fortunately, I uh, found uh, a very good job uh, here at Trinity University in San Antonio in 1992, and I've I've been there ever since. And I have uh, focused on uh, obviously the Middle East. I'm I'm technically a modern Middle East historian, and uh, I uh, one of, one of my areas of expertise, uh, in addition to the Arab-Israeli conflict and, and U.S. foreign policy toward the Middle East, uh, is Syria. And I've been just to just about every country in the in the Middle East multiple times, but I've been to Syria the most. I've been traveling there on a regular basis for the past quarter century, probably going going there over 25 times and sometimes spending a great deal of time there. And it was during those uh, occasions and that uh, I made some contacts and networked and and eventually met a, a lot of people that uh, current President Bashar al-Assad brought into the government, which... Uh, Opened the doors for me to to uh, request meeting him and and uh, being able to meet him on a regular basis for uh, a number of years, and I think that's one of the main reasons why I wrote uh, this book, Syria: The Fall of the House of Assad, not only to shed light on the the uprising itself, the causes and consequences, the domestic, regional, and and international uh, dimensions of of the conflict, but I thought you know what I have to offer that's unique is is my knowledge of him and the Syrian leadership in general, who, who I also got to meet on a regular basis, uh, to shed light on their motivations, how they see the world, uh, the, you know, why did they make the decisions they made in terms of, of not uh, making the reforms that many people demanded and, and uh, of course, sanctioning the brutal crackdown that's now 18 months later. Uh, so I thought that's, you know, what I could offer uh, and... Um, uh, especially in the West, uh, because we just don't have an accurate picture of how Syria and how Syrians and particularly the Syrian leadership see the world. And not that it's a correct view from Damascus uh, by any means. It's in, in many occasions skewed, but it's skewed by their own history, uh, their own heritage and, and their own view of the world. And I thought that uh, that's one of the things I could offer in the book is is uh, portraying and revealing that particular view, which I think uh, informs their their decision to crack down on the protesters. 
Definitely. I think uh, one of the best parts of the book is the portrayal of uh, al-Assad in more of a three-dimensional light as opposed to just a sort of flat tyrant character, which we sort of see nowadays. You describe uh, in the first chapter called The Hope, you mentioned sort of the, the hope people had for him as uh, as he took over as somewhat of a you know reluctant president sort of falling into it uh, after his brother was killed. Could you talk about what your sort of perception, what your thoughts on him were before you knew him and what sort of changed your mind or what made you think that he could be, you know, the hope for Syria? Well, what interested me in the first place and why I wanted to write an earlier book on him uh, that was published in 2005 called The New Line of Damascus, Bashar al-Assad and, and Modern Syria, also published by, by Yale University Press, uh, was that he was different. He was he didn't have the typical profile of a Middle East dictator, so to speak. Uh, you know, he was a licensed ophthalmologist. Uh, he was, you know, kind of the accidental president uh, when his brother, who was generally, you know, accepted to be uh, the one uh, being groomed to succeed his father, was uh, killed in a car accident in 1994. Bashar was actually in London at the time getting an advanced degree uh, in ophthalmology, and he was brought back and slowly, you know, brought into the ruling apparatus and elevated uh, into a position where, you know, he was able to to take power when his father died uh, in 2000. So he really had the atypical profile of a Middle East ruler. And that that really was uh, interested me uh, quite a bit. Uh, and I was curious about learning about him. And and uh, so I made the request to to meet with him in 2002 uh, through a, a friend of mine who was a uh, who was an academic that I knew years before and was now in the the uh, cabinet. Uh, in fact, uh, the fact that Bashar brought a number of academics uh, into positions of power in the government was one of the things that led many people to think that he was different. That uh, perhaps uh, you know he might uh, implement uh, uh, a broad range of of reforms and change that might incrementally change the authoritarian system in in Syria. Uh, and I finally got the go-ahead uh, to meet with him extensively uh, in 2004, and I, of course, met with him on a regular basis until 2009. Um, and he was uh, always, uh, when I met with him, certainly in the beginning, uh, you know, quite uh, the normal person, relatively speaking. Uh, he seemed to be a very good family man. He was always very gracious, uh, very unpretentious, uh, and almost self-deprecating. And you know that seemed to be quite different from the, the typical authoritarian ruler, uh, and he tried to implement change in areas where he could because he he really didn't gain full control, I think, of the ruling apparatus until about 2005, 2006. So when I start for, started first meeting him in 2004, he was still searching for ways to, to um, make reforms in areas where he could, and, and particularly in education and in reforming some of the administrative apparatus some things in the economy, a political reform always lagged far behind and always would uh, for the remainder of his time in power, it seems. Um, so uh, a lot of us, uh, and not just uh, in Syria, but in the West, because of this different profile, had uh, yeah, maybe uh, uh, had high hopes that uh, perhaps he was uh, a different leader than, than his father had been uh, and that he could implement change. Uh, I think, however, and I, and I remember writing about it at the time, and much more so later on, that I think expectations in the West were were too high for him. I, in fact, the first time I met with uh, uh, President uh, Assad, I half, you know, jokingly mentioned to him that the worst thing he did was, you know, make it known in the West or make it known that he liked Phil Collins' music. <laughs> and uh, of course, in the West, uh, you know, that which widely it was widely disseminated, and everyone. You know, it reinforced this uh, uh, this profile that was emerging that he was a pro West modernizer, uh, who was a you know computer nerd, an ophthalmologist, and that he would implement change dramatically. And I remember thinking at the time and thereafter that that was you know, missing the point a little bit. Uh, uh, you know, he was different in many ways, but but he wasn't in other ways. I mean, the, the it wasn't the eighteen months he spent in London that. That was the you know the formative period of his life. It, it was being the son of Hafs al-Assad. It was being a child of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the superpower Cold War and all the tumultuous events in in Lebanon. Uh, those things shaped his worldview, I think, much more so than uh, you know the technological toys of the West or the music uh, of the West. And unfortunately, I think the 
the expectations were too high in the West and maybe even in Syria itself. And when those expectations are that high, you're bound to disappoint. Um, and the level of dis disappointment is going to be deeper. Uh, and I think uh, that's what happened uh, fairly early on. You mentioned his time uh, in London, and as you point out in the book, that lots of people sort of hoped or assumed that because he had lived in the West, and I think that's a, a notion that uh, is applied to other leaders in the Middle East as well, is that they have spent time in the West, so they're going to be significantly influenced by it. Do you think his, his time in London had much influence on him at all? Did you notice any sort of influences or anything that he brought back from his time there? I, I asked him that, and uh, we discussed it uh, fairly thoroughly. And I, I, I think that in terms of, of trying to uh, bring Syria technologically you know, into the 21st century, to find uh, an, a niche in the, in the international economic community, try to find some value added for, for Syria – uh, that would give it some some sort of uh, uh, advantageous position in the international uh, marketplace, and much as India had done. He had brought that up uh, several times. So uh, I think it had that type of effect in terms of, of improving the technology, the infrastructure, the economy of Syria. But I don't think the, you know, the, the politics and the democracy and, and so forth in, in uh, existing in England and elsewhere in the West had as much of an effect on him. I think it, it did to a certain degree. And, and I think in the beginning, he tried to, to some political reforms uh, in what was called the Damascus Spring soon after he came to power. But that was turned around very quickly uh, as most of the, you know, the old guard, uh, so to speak, that had been in power, positions of power in, in Syria for, for decades you know, they, they realized that that would undermine their positions, their socioeconomic and political positions. And so there was a, uh, a retraction from that brief opening. Uh, and I think uh, Bashar realized then and there that there's only so much he could do in terms of political reform. And so he must therefore concentrate on these other these uh, other types of reform that that um, unfortunately over the years tended to accrue more to, uh, you know, the the elite classes uh, in the in Syria, that tended to reinforce and, and expand the the gap uh, in the distribution of wealth and, and socioeconomic status between this elite and the rest of the country. You mentioned that uh, during the first few years of his uh, presidency, he didn't have much control over the sort of the security establishment, mm -hmm. but uh, that he eventually sort of took over and you know gained their respect and gained the authority. He uh, then had some sort of Big tests during the middle of uh, the 2000s with the um, Hezbollah conflict with Israel and also with the Hariri assassination. How much influence and control do you think he had over Hezbollah at the time? And do they, you know, was he really the one sort of calling the shots there, or was that other forces? Yeah, no, I I, I think uh, uh, his father had a much more uh, uh, controlling relationship with with Hezbollah. Uh, in fact, many people would say that the relationship uh, went in reverse. Whereas, you know, in the '90s, uh, Syria was the senior partner and Hezbollah the junior partner. Uh, you know, by 2005, 2006, 2007, certainly after the Israeli Hezbollah war in the summer of 2006, that it had flipped and that uh, Hezbollah actually was now the senior partner because of the popularity of its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, and that uh, Syria was the, the junior partner. So uh, Hezbollah had a great deal of independence in the actions it was undertaking. And if anything, uh, Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime were riding on the coattails of his popularity after 2006 uh, for a number of years. Uh, so I, I, you know, they have some influence, uh, the Syrian regime does, because, you know, the Iranian... Uh, uh, money and training and arms tends to be funneled through Syria. So uh, Syria, uh, you know, the, through through that alone has some sort of influence. Uh, but Hezbollah, I think, uh, you know, is still uh, provided uh, Syria with the conduit of influence in Lebanon uh, after the Syrian troops uh, evacuated Lebanon following the Hidri assassination. So Hezbollah, in many ways, has almost been you know as important, or maybe even more important, to Damascus uh, than the other way around.
You mentioned uh, an incident in 2007 when uh, you were traveling to Syria for a scheduled meeting with the president and you were actually detained at the airport and interrogated for several hours. I was wondering if you could go into more detail about that because it sounds like a, a very fascinating story. Yes, uh, you know, many times I, most of the times I visited Syria when I met with the president and had a scheduled meeting with him, I would be met uh, right off the plane or right in the tarmac by, you know, uh, cars from the office of the president, protocol officers, and I'd be taken to the hotel. Every now and then that didn't happen because if there was another leader in town or the protocol office was was otherwise occupied and I'd have to go through, you know, customs like like everybody else. Uh, so on this occasion, uh, in uh, November 2007, when I arrived with a scheduled meeting with uh, the president, uh, there was nobody meeting me at the airport. So I, you know, a little disappointed, obviously, but uh, uh, I realized that that wasn't terribly unusual. So I went through uh, customs. And when I went to, to the customs officer, he said, basically, I was blacklisted. Uh, and he confiscated my passport. And then I got taken to this little room by security, which is part of the the Mukhabarat, the security services uh, in Syria. There are many different branches of the security services, and airport security is one of them. And I was brought into a room. There were several officers, and there was one colonel who uh, uh, asked me a series of questions and doubted that I was you know, there to meet with the president. He was asking me why I was there and, and what I was up to and all of these things. And I was, it was interesting. I was seated in a very low chair, and they were all in very high chairs. Uh, and uh, he twirled... Uh, what I, I guess was a loaded gun in front of me, you know, almost like Russian roulette trying to intimidate me. And I basically I didn't get too worried about it. I, I kind of understood what they were trying to do. And I thought probably the worst thing is that I would just be kicked out of the country. But I finally convinced him that it would be worse for him if he did not make the call to the office of the president, which I'd been beseeching him to do, uh, than to uh, then to kick me out because uh, he would get in a great deal of trouble with the president's office. And so he finally made the call, and uh, he found out that, indeed, I had a meeting with the president, and he immediately turned several shades of white, uh, pale white, uh, and uh, was very, you know, he all of a sudden became my best friend. And, and one of the mm -hmm. interesting ironies of that is uh, he found out that I had written this book on Bashar al-Assad, and he said, he asked me for my autograph. He didn't have a piece of paper, so he gave me the actual list of, of blacklisted people on which my name appeared. And so I autographed that uh, for him. Uh, so I finally made it through, but I saw the president early the next morning. And of course, one of the first things he always asked was, how was your trip? And I said, well, other than the three hour, you know, interrogation at the airport, it was just fine. Uh, and he was uh, aghast and appalled by all that. And, and, uh, you know, he gave an order that, you know, to somebody who said, oh, this will never happen again. Of course, it happened again in February. Uh, you know, a few months later. Uh, so even the president's decrees don't sometimes uh, get followed or make it through to the security officers, although that detention was was not, you know, was, was nothing uh, too, uh, too severe. Um, and I remember telling him at the, you know, when we were discussing this uh, situation, I, 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 I uh, told him, uh, <clears throat> you know, Mr. President, you, you really need to get control of these guys because it could come back to haunt you. And he said he knew. He knew that they engaged in excesses from time to time. But his position was always that it's a necessary evil in a dangerous neighborhood. And to some extent, that is true. It is a dangerous neighborhood. And there are threats, internal and, and external. And he'd just been through a number of threats and attempts by the West to, to overthrow him. Uh, but, you know, in my mind, it was, you know, a kind of abdication of power to the Muhabbadat, to, to the security services. And, and he was giving them way too much leeway. And that ultimately that could that could hurt him, uh, and by by uh, them engaging in these excesses that that uh, uh, in the right conditions could come back to to unseat the regime and cause a rebellion. And, and in a way, that's exactly what happened because it was the hubris of the security services in roughly handling the those children in Dara in uh, in uh, March uh, 2011 that lit the fire of of uh, the rebellion in Syria and, and allowed the Arab Spring to seep into Syria. And so, uh, you know, he, in my mind, he acquiesced to that level of autonomy on the part of the Mukhabarat. And he never really attempted to, to gain control over them. He accepted that, that notion that they had to maintain this type of, of uh, leeway and power in order to protect the regime. 
instead of trying to to curtail their power and change the nature of of the authoritarian system. At what point do you think uh, Bashar al-Assad sort of made the switch from the reluctant president who's just sort of thrust into this job and sort of doing his duty for his family and for his country to really taking control and sort of, as you allude to several times in the book, sort of feeling like it's his destiny, that he's supposed to be the savior for Syria? I think I I, I suspect it started to happen uh, particularly after the Hadidi assassination in, in 2005 and and uh, having survived, uh, you know, the, the worst the international community could do to him in the aftermath of that. He was internationally isolated. The U.S. and its allies were actively trying to to overthrow him, basically. Uh, and he survived that. And uh, and then you had the Israeli Hezbollah war and, and riding the coattails of popularity of, of Hassan uh, Nasrallah. Uh, and I think that created a sense of almost triumphalism if not cockiness on his part, that he had taken the, you know, the worst shot that anyone could take and he survived and it was actually flourishing, you know, in, in relative terms, you know, by 2008, especially uh, when the Bush administration was going out and the Obama administration uh, coming in. And I think that really started to, to change his, his view of, of his position in Syria and in the region and if not the world. And he started to believe the the propaganda and press surrounding him and all the sycophants that that on a daily basis in one way or another would tell him that that you know his destiny was uh, synonymous with with uh, Syria's and that his well-being was synonymous with uh, Syria's well-being and only his staying in power uh, would lead to um, you know a better life for Syrians in general and and if you're told that on an everyday basis uh, I think you start to believe it on a, on a personal level. Uh, I saw it uh, become manifest uh, on an earlier meeting, actually, in 2007, in uh, May and June of 2007, uh, during the uh, his uh, re-election uh, referendum uh, that was held at that time. And he won like 97 percent of the vote. Of course, he was the only one running, so to speak. And and there was so much pomp and circumstance surrounding that, that quote unquote re-election uh, you know, he had issued the personality cult before that time. He 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 actively, you know, dissuaded people from hanging up posters and and uh, throwing parades in his honor and all this sort of thing that tended to to accumulate uh, during his father's time in power. Uh, but in 2007, I saw it all return. And rather than him, you know, I expected him to roll his eyes saying, well, this is what happens, you know, and uh, you know, I'm letting the people do it. Uh, he encouraged it and he embraced it, uh, which was surprising to me. Uh, I remember at that very moment when I was with him, you know, just me and him, and and he had almost a cathartic uh, reaction when I asked him about all this. Uh, you know, almost you know what I call and what I describe in the book as his Sally Field moment when Sally Field got her second Oscar and mm-hmm. up on the podium and said uh, to the Hollywood community, "You love me. You really love me." And and I almost got that sense from Bashar that uh, he felt this, that the people really loved him and that, that he believed it all. When, in fact, probably, you know, 75 percent of everybody out there was arranged or orchestrated or people felt they had to do it because they didn't want to be seen as not you know supporting the president because of the security services or watching everybody. Uh, and that's how things work. And I thought he really understood that. But he he bought into it. And that's when I really thought to myself that he had uh, you know drunk the Kool-Aid of power. Um, and uh, had now assimilated into the authoritarian system rather than changing the authoritarian system. And I remember thinking at that moment, I didn't verbalize it, but I thought, well, you are now the president for life. Uh, whereas up until that time, most times I met him, it was, you know, uh, you know, he was doing his job and, and you know, trying to do the best he can. And, uh, uh, you know, you got this sense that uh, uh, this is not uh, something that uh, you know he was going to do for the rest of his life. But uh, in 2007, I got a completely uh, different vibe from him. Based on that and his sort of acceptance and belief that he had become president for life, do you think if he could go back in time and, you know, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, see what's happening in Egypt and Tunisia and Libya – do you think he would do anything differently than he's done, or do you think he would follow the same course that he's he's chosen? 
I think he'd follow the same course he's chosen. I think from the very beginning, he saw this uh, as a security solution. Uh, he was very much taken off guard and very surprised uh, by how the Arab Spring hit Syria. Uh, you know, he was making comments and his spokespeople were making comments, you know, just before it broke out in Syria. They were actually showing support for the protesters in, in Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere. Uh, and he felt very secure in his position. He thought he was popular beyond condemnation. He thought that uh, because you know he had opposed Israel and the United States consistently, that that would be enough to prevent the Arab Spring from coming into Syria. But he misread the situation as uh, as many people did, uh, and uh, you know he 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 uh, failed to really comprehend the socioeconomic. Uh, uh, rationale and reasons and causes of the uprising and the the level of political repression that over the years that people uh, had been getting more and more tired of and that the Arab Spring had broken the barrier of fear for many Syrians because they saw what was happening in other countries and, and dictatorial regimes being overthrown. So he failed to really understand all of that. Uh, but on the other hand, I think that the way he had, you know, uh, evolved in the position itself, the way he and his his uh, supporters see the world, uh, they really do believe, as he said in his first speech addressing the uprising on March 30th, 2011, that that uh, you know the uprising is the is being caused by conspirators from the outside and armed gangs and who are uh, you know working with pernicious and dangerous outside forces like the United States and. In Israel and Saudi Arabia and, and others, uh, many people thought that that was a blatant misdirection from the real socioeconomic causes of the uprising. But I contend that that the Syrian leadership and most importantly Bashar al-Assad actually believe that more than most people, uh, you know, would think, uh, because of this evolution of of how they see the world and 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 how Syrians have a, such a paranoid view, and not just the leadership, but most Syrians in general have such a paranoid view. Uh, of the outside world. Uh, and that's just developed from their own history and their own experiences because there just have been enough, you know, imperialist and, and great power machination inside Syria over the decades since it became an independent country in 1946. You know, there's been enough of that to convince people uh, that it happens all the time. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, many, you know, people in Syria, the so-called silent majority, you know, they're, they're loath to to uh, join the uprising, uh, you know, because they've enjoyed the the stability and, and security that uh, the Assads have provided them over the decades, uh, fighting this type of of uh, um, uh, pernicious uh, forces from the outside again and again and again. So, you know, I don't think he would have changed anything. Looking back, I, I you know, maybe some things in terms of uh, military strategy or security strategy. But overall, I, I really do believe if I saw him today, he would tell me he's saving the country uh, from itself, even, you know, that he knows better uh, and that what he's doing is the right thing for the country in the long term. Compared to uh, many of the other leaders that are facing popular uprisings in the Middle East, he's been in power a, a relatively short amount of time. Do you think if the Arab Spring had happened in the beginning of his presidency, when he had only been in office a few years and was still the sort of reluctant president, that things would have been different, that he might have just used it as an opportunity to be a sort of transitional leader as opposed to president for life? That's an interesting question. I, I think uh, it could have gone one or two ways. Uh, I think he could have uh, embraced the changed and use it as a way uh, to to outmaneuver perhaps some of the old guard in Syria, uh, because the population still was very enamored with this new young you know, ophthalmologist who became president, um, and because he you know had yet to become the you know the the person that he became you know by two thousand six two thousand seven somebody who was very comfortable with the authoritarian, someone who, be, who had become very comfortable with the authoritarian Syrian system. Uh, so perhaps, uh, you know, he could have, it, it could have um, added to the momentum that uh, was created with the Damascus Spring that lasted for eight or nine months uh, to uh, outmaneuver uh, the, the forces of resistance in Syria, which are very strong. 
Uh, on the other hand, if uh, the, another way it could have evolved, if that happened at that time, is is uh, you know the the forces of resistance, the old guard, so to speak, uh, might have uh, acted uh, and moved against Bashar, and maybe put another family member in or some other Alawite general uh, who would be more trusted and and uh, uh, with uh, maintaining the system as it existed and and fighting against the level of change. And in that case, you know, it'd be a very similar situation to what exists right now with the government crackdown. During the initial weeks and months of the Arab Spring, it was one of the, you know, major news stories of of the year, of the decade even. But now it seems to have sort of transitioned to a point where it's only occasionally in the news when there's a major massacre or attack or, you know, violent upflare, and then it sort of drifts away and people don't think about it, even to the point where I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, satirical newspaper, The Onion, and they had a, uh, a he- you know, funny headline back in July that says, scientists say U.S. may have discovered previously unknown level of not caring about Syria. <laughs> That's funny. And I'm wondering, what, what would you say to, you know, the average American who maybe doesn't follow this closely as to why they should care about what happens in Syria. Yeah, I, I agree. Unfortunately, the the Syrian situation has become routinized uh, in the American psyche and in the and therefore in the American media. And, and the only time we hear something is when there's a you know a, a an atrocity that occurs that you know, usually on usually perpetrated by what are perceived to be government forces or government militias. And uh, uh, in a way, that kind of has reflected what has happened to Syria. It has settled into this protracted civil war uh, where the government uh, and the opposition really don't have the wherewithal to land a knockout punch to either side. And so you, know, you have this give and take. And unless there's a, something injected into the equation which will change the balance of forces, such as outside intervention, which I don't see happening, uh, I think this protracted stalemate will continue. And frankly, I think the Syrian government uh, probably doesn't mind. They don't want to be on the front pages. Uh, you know, they see this in a long-term sense, that they can turn this around in 10 years. Uh, and in 10 years' time, you know, they'll be able to reassert their power, uh, be able to reingratiate themselves into the regional uh, system and in the international community, because they've seen it happen before. You know, the Middle East affords countries a number of opportunities to to uh, get back into the fold, so to speak. Um, and uh, Egypt has done it, Iraq has done it, uh, and then gone in reverse and, and so forth. And, and so, you know, the Syrian leadership, I believe, takes this long-term view. Uh, unfortunately, you know, what, what can happen uh, is that uh, these, uh, the sectarian conflict and civil war can spill across the borders into Lebanon, uh, into Iraq, uh, could possibly uh, escalate into some sort of an Arab-Israeli confrontation. And then you have all sorts of problems, and this becomes just a nightmare. I think most of the international community would, would be very happy with the insulation of this civil war, uh, you know, uh, and, and not having it uh, uh, spread across the borders in, in any direction. Um, however, you know, if it does... Uh, then we'll be seeing this uh, Syrian uh, crisis uh, in the news again, uh, and not in a very good way. And it will place the international community and the United States in a very difficult or more difficult position than it already has been in terms of of making the decision on whether or not to, to intervene uh, militarily uh, or send forces in to separate other forces. And so that could be very dangerous. And and, of course, something that I think most people want to avoid. I think most of the international community from the very beginning wanted the Syrian situation just to go away, just to fizzle out. They were hoping beyond hope, in, in retrospect, that Bashar al-Assad would make the reforms necessary uh, that would at least split the opposition and, and Bashar's forces could take care of the rest. That's why they gave Bashar al-Assad a lot of rope in the beginning and why it took several months until uh, President Obama and, and uh, the, the European Union uh, finally uh, made the decision that Bashar al-Assad had to go because uh, they realized that he wasn't making that choice, uh, that, in fact, he had chosen the security solution. Uh, but, it, you know, Syria has become so entangled in regional and international politics 
that uh, the slightest uh, disruption to this stalemate uh, could spread uh, diplomatically and, and militarily beyond Syria's borders. And, and as I said earlier, then we'll be seeing it in the news every day again, and not in a good way. Well, you mentioned that President Obama and European leaders have said that uh, Bashar al-Assad has to go, and many have said that it's a matter of if, and or a matter of uh, when and not if. But you say in the book that the, the regime has engaged in a Machiavellian calibration of bloodletting, enough to do the job, but not enough to lose what international support remained. Do you think, at this point, many leaders have said, you know, it's time for al-Assad to go, but no one seems to really want to step up and sort of flip the switch to make it happen. Do you think there's anything they could do short of, some people have said, using chemical weapons on their own people, but do you think there's really anything that could get the international community more involved in the Syrian conflict? Uh, it would have to be something along the level of the 1982 massacre at Hama, where 15 to 25,000 people were killed uh, at, at the orders of his father against a Muslim Brotherhood uprising that that had, uh, you know, basically uh, evolved into a civil war at that time, and the Muslim Brotherhood was carrying out assassinations and and killings of, of their own. Um, what's you know ironic about that is is in 18 months of the uprising, it, it appears that you know between 20, 15 and 25,000 people have been killed, about the same number that were killed in a couple of days in, in Hama. And I think the regime has been very careful in trying not to have an episode like that, and, and of course not use uh, chemical weapons, which I don't think they will unless they're you know, in their last you know breath in, in power and feel that's the only way they can stay in power. Um, so, uh, but on the problem with that is that the regime has associated themselves with some of these militias, the so-called Shabiha, who are these fanatical, mostly Alawite supporters of the regime, who, who you know, for for money, for uh, because they they fear that uh, they'll be wiped out if a Sunni uh, Arab regime comes to power, if Assad falls, uh, the regime has given them a lot of leeway and almost. Uh, uh, sanctioning their dirty work that gives some level of plausible deniability to government forces. Once you unleash those type of forces that carry out these atrocities, it's very hard to rein them back in. So, you know, something could happen uh, perpetrated by these paramilitary forces that that might compel the, the international community to, to assert itself more than it already has. But it, I, I don't see anything happening you know, short of something like a Hamas 1982 or certainly uh, chemical weapons that would generate that type of international response because uh, uh, there's just no appetite in the international community right now. The international community is too, too divided. The regional uh, situation is too, uh, too delicate. Uh, and we really don't understand Syria and what's going on there very well. We don't understand the, the opposition forces who are fractured and divided among themselves, and we don't even know who would get the arms. And some people have equated uh, you know, Syria to Afghanistan in the 1980s when we armed the Mujahideen and people like Osama bin Laden. And, and of course, it came back to haunt us uh, because we didn't understand the nature of the, the forces in the opposition in Afghanistan. And, and similar in Syria, we don't really understand it. There's not one coherent, unified coordinated group uh, in Syria that uh, really has an address uh, that we could support, uh, unlike the National Transition Council in Libya uh, that uh, the U.S. and NATO uh, successfully uh, supported uh, last year in overthrowing Gaddafi. Uh, and even that had some complications. And of course, in the aftermath, there are even more complications, as we've seen in recent days. Um, so, you know, Syria is, is a much more complex situation. It's a much harder nut to crack uh, you know, establishing a safe uh, haven would require establishing no-fly zones, and the Syrian anti-aircraft defense system is much more sophisticated than Libya's, uh, and it's much more integrated in, in, the, in the large cities in Syria, so there would be much more collateral damage. Uh, the Syrian army is much more capable than the Libyan army and much more uh, loyal uh, to the regime, despite uh, the defections that, that have occurred to date. Uh, so I, I, I really don't see... Anything short of a, a huge, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 catastrophe in terms of a Hamas 1982-style massacre or chemical weapons generating the necessary international support to to take more assertive action.
I'm curious if you were talking with or advising leaders in Israel who might be worried about a large Arab state very near to them imploding almost at any given moment, how would you advise them to handle it and how would you advise them to sort of talk to their friends in the international community to handle it? Because it seems like from the U.S. it's maybe safer or easier for us to take a sort of wait-and-see approach, but for them it's, I imagine, a much more tense situation. Yeah, it, it, Israel's situation is is uh, is very difficult. Uh, the Arab Spring in general, not just Syria. I, I think they were prudent, uh, you know, in, in the beginning, and for the most part until now, in terms of not really giving opinions on on the Arab Spring because uh, um, yeah, they could do more harm than good to the to the forces that would be more advantageous to them by inserting themselves you know, into the mix or giving uh, official opinions on, on what is going on. And and they did so with Syria. I mean, there was a debate uh, in Syria, in uh, Israel uh, regarding Syria in the beginning that to some extent still has gone on. But uh, uh, I think, you know, the Syrian, uh, the Israeli uh, leadership has come around to basically accepting that Bashar has to go as well and will go at some point. But in the beginning, there was this debate over, you know, that, you know, better the devil, you know, and, and despite you know, uh, uh, not agreeing with uh, Bashar al-Assad on many things, uh, he was a stable and knowable entity uh, who had engaged in in direct peace negotiations with Israel, uh, brokered by the Turks in in 2007-2008, when Israel carried out some, you know, clandestine attacks, or what most people think was was Israel, uh, in uh, Syria. Syria didn't respond uh, against Israeli uh, uh, targets or anything, it uh, you know it kind of accepts its ace its asymmetrical junior status to to Israel. So you know many Israelis were were worried that Bashar might fall and and what might happen in the aftermath that there would be this chaos and instability, possibly a you know a, a radical Sunni Islamist state on its border on its northern border. So you know many people were were just saying just just hang back and and relax and and hopefully Bashar can get through this as much of the international community was doing as well. But I think they realized as uh, uh the uprising went on as the crackdown became more brutal as the international community most of it uh uh came out against Assad the Israelis started to realize that he had to go as well. Uh but they really can't do anything uh, to guarantee that any, you know, post-Assad environment uh, uh, will will uh, uh, be advantageous for them or, or or be a stable environment where they wouldn't have to worry too much. Uh, they've already, I'm sure, engaged in beefing up their their defenses on their northern border in the Golan Heights uh, against Syria. And their biggest concern right now, I think, is if if the Syrian regime in a last dying you know, breath and attempt to stay in power might try to transform an internal conflict into an Arab-Israeli one and lob some missiles into to Israel, uh, as Saddam Hussein attempted to do in the 1990-91 Gulf crisis and war to, to transform, a, you know, what was then a different crisis into an Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, so I think, uh, uh, you know, what they're hoping for is is whatever happens that uh, uh that it, you know that Syria just doesn't break down and implode, uh, and chaos occur where there could be forces that that get their hands on chemical and biological weapons, where there's a any sort of radical Sunni Islamist regime committed to to uh, you know uh, uh, to destruction of Israel, um, or a regime which could likely happen as well that comes into power after Assad that. Is no less a friend of Hezbollah and Iran than Assad is. Uh, you know that that's not a guarantee that just because Assad falls, that the regime that comes in is going to break ties with Tehran or with Hezbollah. So there's so many variables out there that, and I'm sure the Israelis are are planning all sorts of different contingencies, four different contingencies. Um, and essentially, if I was advising them, and I think what they're doing is just you know wait and see. Um, I, I, some elements in Israel late in the past uh, week or so have come out and, and try to, uh, encourage the U S to, to intervene more directly on, in, on behalf of the Syrian opposition. But I don't think that's the official government view. It's just some of the more right of, of center elements in, in Syria and in Israel are, are, uh, uh, advocating that. 
but that may go hand in hand with the same groups in Israel that are advocating the U.S. take a more aggressive stance vis-a-vis Iran. Uh, so it, it's Israel's in a very, for them, difficult position where they have to be fairly passive and, and wait and see rather than, than taking action. If al-Assad is able to maintain power and endure a civil war that uh, the rest of the world seems unwilling to intervene in, what effect do you think that will have on the U.S. and Western nations' ability to influence foreign policy in years and decades to come, given the many statements that it's time for him to go, you know, Bashar al-Assad's days are numbered? Yeah, I think if Assad somehow survives, and which which is plausible, uh, I don't think he will ever be have the level of control that he had uh, during his first ten years in power. Uh, I think you know he's lost his mandate to rule. He's lost uh, his legitimacy, and certainly, you know, the level of popularity he had in the country. And, and at most, you know, I think the government may control, you know, a certain percentage of the country, whereas there are other. Uh, areas that are outside of his control or have virtual autonomy, such as the the Kurdish area in Syria and in northeastern Syria. Um, so I I, I think uh, uh, from the international community's uh, perspective, uh, who never had much influence on on Syrian policy, I think what they can best hope for uh, is that uh, Syria is you know basically uh, is insulated uh, that the Breakup of Syria into these fiefdoms or, or warlordism, uh, you know, doesn't become something like a new Lebanon or an Iraq after 2003 uh, that could spill across uh, borders. Uh, already, Turkey is fairly, you know, tense about uh, you know this autonomy that the Kurd that the, the regime has given the Kurds already uh, in the northeast and how uh, the deteriorating relations uh, between Syria and, and Turkey have have uh, compelled the Syrian regime to support the PKK again, this Kurdish group that fighting for independence and autonomy in, in, uh, in Turkey. Um, and in, in essence, uh, what's left of Syria in terms of, you know, the, the territory under government control would, in many ways, in my view, if the Assad regime survives, become something like the North Korea of the Middle East, uh, where it's this, this isolated and, and, uh, uh, diplomatically uh, isolated country uh, that's shunned by most of the international community, uh, and uh, they become, uh, you know, a hardened shell of what they had been. And and uh, the ruling regime will stay in power, and the people will will be even uh, uh, perhaps controlled even more. At least those that are in those territories that are under its control. So it's not a very pretty picture. Um, and this is why I, you know. Ultimately, what might have to happen for the for Syria for the Syrian people in general is is for one side, you know, uh, particularly the opposition side, uh, to win uh, at some point. Uh, particularly if it's more of a Syrian solution to this, and may, this may take some a long time. Uh, but usually, in these cases, somebody, some faction, hopefully, will emerge at a level of popularity and authority that cuts across all of the the ethnic and religious sectarian nature of Syria uh, can maybe uh, bring the country back together again. But, you know, I really do think this this will take at least a generation to play itself out. Given your knowledge of Syria and your contacts there, do you see anyone who could potentially any person or group that could be a sort of a front runner for the group to emerge as a potential leader in a post-al-Assad Syria, especially given the sectarian nature, and you mentioned in the book uh, al-Assad's ability to sort of, even though he comes from a minority community within Syria, his ability to use different minorities and sort of play them against each other and use the sort of fear factor to maintain his power, do you see anyone that could legitimately sort of take over post-al-Assad? Uh, not really, unfortunately. Uh, the, the, the opposition is so divided amongst themselves. Uh, they've been fractured in, in many different ways. There's many different fault lines in the opposition uh, between the more Islamist groups and the more secular ones, uh, between the, uh, those opposition groups that are on the outside 
and those that are fighting and dying on the inside. And that's a huge gulf. That's a huge fault line that will be very difficult to, to overcome. Uh, and then those that want to perhaps a more negotiated solution and the increasing majority that want a more militaristic uh, solution to this. And then there are personal antagonisms. There are antagonisms that, that were exploited and developed by the regime over the decades. Uh, so that's why there really hasn't been any generally accepted uh, group uh, that has been able to unify all these different groups together uh, against uh, against the regime. Even the United States has kind of moved away from the Syrian National Council, which had generally been the the, the group that most of the international community accepted as the interlocutor for the Syrian opposition. Uh, there are a few individuals, uh, such as uh, Michel Kilo, uh, Riyadh Saif, Riyadh uh, Turk, uh, who had opposed the, the Assads for years and were you know, in and out of prison over the years, and, and, and they had been part of parliament uh, as well. So they are respected senior statesmen, but that who could perhaps bridge some of these gulfs and these fissures between all these different opposition groups. But on the other hand, it's become so militarized in the opposition, as well as in the government. Uh, it's become such an existential conflict uh, that many of these these individuals who have who gained such uh, respect uh, and who have been calling for a negotiated solution uh, maybe have been discredited and delegitimized because it has become so militarized on, on, on each side. I'm curious, uh, in the, the book, you mentioned that in the summer and autumn of 2011, many headlines in major newspapers were predicting the imminent fall of Assad, but that by the end of 2011, they'd sort of flipped, and it seemed as though he was going to stay in power, and they were focusing on the, the ways he was maintaining control. I'm wondering at what point did you feel that okay I can you know title this book the fall of the house of Assad that this is where things will most likely be going Well I when I came up with the title of the book I was uh, fully aware and expected that the regime would stay in power past the publication date maybe long past the publication date uh, because I understand and know the resiliency of the regime and maybe more importantly their determination to stay in power. But I named it that that way for, for two reasons uh, in particular. One, in a more personal way, that uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad, to me personally, had fallen. Uh, he, uh, he went, uh, you know, he, he developed into, uh, into a type of leader uh, that uh, was particularly uh, distasteful. Uh, he developed into the typical Middle East uh, dictator who would do anything to stay in power, uh, so to speak, for whatever reason, however they saw the world. Uh, so to me personally, he had fallen from from that person that many in whom many people had had high hopes, including myself, uh, into someone who would sanction this brutal crackdown. So he had fallen in that sense, and the House of Assad had fallen. In uh, another level, again, the 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 mandate to rule uh, for the Assad's father and son was to provide security and stability in a dangerous world and maybe even some prosperity from time to time. Uh, it was a Faustian bargain with the Syrian people that they would provide this security and stability in return for their subservience and giving up certain freedoms. And most of the Syrian people bought into that. Uh, but that's gone. You know, they're, they're, obviously, the Assad regime has not provided the security and stability. In fact, their policies in sanctioning the crackdown has brought about the instability and chaos that we see today. So they've lost that mandate to rule. They've lost that legitimacy to rule. And so the House of Assad, in that sense, has fallen. They've failed that mandate to rule. Uh, and therefore, they will never have uh, the level of power and authority and legitimacy that they once enjoyed. Is there anything that has happened uh, after you had to uh, submit your final manuscript for the book that you wish you could have put in or that might have changed your analysis of things? No, not really. Uh, I, I wish I could have covered uh, some of the defections, uh, particularly Manaf Talas, who, who I know quite well, who is a mm -hmm. Syrian general from one of the most famous families and maybe the family most responsible for bringing the Assads uh, in, into power. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the book had just gone to, to press the manuscript had just gone to press <laughs> like the day he, 
he uh, defected, and uh, I wrote a piece in, in foreign policy uh, on that. Uh, and what and 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 again to really counter what the international community and the Syrian opposition were saying, because the international community and opposition were saying this is the beginning of the end. You know, yet again saying that uh, it's the beginning of the end for the Assad regime. The edifice is cracking, and so forth and so on. And and what I wrote in that article, and what I would have written in the book, is that uh, you know Manaf Talas uh, uh, had been marginalized within the inner circle for a number of years. Uh, and that uh, he was uh, Sunni, he wasn't part of the uh, the Alawite uh, inner circle. That also includes some Sunnis as well. Uh, so you know, while a a spectacular uh, defection uh, on the surface, it really didn't hurt uh, the the functioning of the of the inner circle of of the regime. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, you know, it, it was it this was not uh, the beginning of the end, and and the the edifice. Uh, of the regime actually was was quite strong, and the and same with uh, some other high profile defections. Uh, although it again it creates this it creates this image that that uh, perhaps it's cracking, which in itself you know can be can be very uh, can be devastating to the regime. On a real level, uh, the regime was uh, staying together and hanging together because they all feel they're in the the same boat and they'll sink or swim together. Uh, much more cohesively than that which than that which uh, we observed in places like Egypt and Tunisia and Libya. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember the Talas defection, and it it seemed like you know that was yet another event where okay, it might be you know the House of Cards is about to fall, and then a few days later, it seems to sort of fade away. Yeah, well, I mean, what's interesting is that ever since probably uh, October, ever since Gaddafi was found and, and killed uh, in Libya. I've been asked on a consistent basis by some of the major media outlets in in this country and in Europe uh, to uh, for comments on what they what they were working on in terms of an obituary for for Bashar <laughs> al-Assad. They were, uh, you know, because you know they're they they want to get one ready just you know in case when he falls so they can publish it and they want to get comments from from Syrian analysts and so forth. And each one of them, I said, you know, this is really premature. He's he's going to stay in power probably for much longer. I gave a few comments anyway, but uh, obviously uh, uh, the many predictions uh, that uh, he was going to fall imminently uh, were wrong. Well, I guess they were just hoping that you could see into the future and accurately <laughs> predict his death. Right, right. Well, I guess uh, if you name a book, uh, The Fall of the House of Assad, they think I'm going <laughs> to agree with them. You know? <laughs> well, David, thank you uh, very much for taking the time to talk with me today. If you okay. could... Before I let you go, could you uh, briefly tell us what you're working on now? What upcoming projects you have? Well, I, I have a, a book that I uh, edited along with uh, my colleague Mark Haas uh, that's called uh, The Arab Spring, uh, Change and Resistance in the Middle East, being published by Westview Press, and that's coming out in November. Uh, and Mark and I are, are very pleased with uh, that book, and it's getting some very, very good uh, initial reviews uh, and I think it gives a, a very readable, um, a very readable assessment and uh, uh, examination of the Arab Spring throughout uh, the Middle East, uh, not only in the Arab countries who who experienced uh, the uprisings, but uh, also the regional context and the international context, you know, between the United States and Russia, Turkey and Iran and Israel and so forth. Uh, so I think it really gives a complete understanding of the Arab Spring. Uh, you know, as we as as we know it up till the writing. So I think it's still, uh, even though you know, there's a gap of between the uh, uh, the finishing of the book and the publication date. I think it still holds up very very well. Uh, and then I'm also working uh, uh, on a uh, a book um, on the, uh, the the modern history of Syria, which is kind of a magnum opus, so to speak, of every, all the things I've written on Syria over the years. Uh, and that will look at uh, uh, the modern history of Syria from the late Ottoman period uh, in the 19th century through uh, the uprising, and and maybe by the time it comes out, uh, the end of the uprising. Excellent. Well, I'd I'd love to talk to you again uh, when that comes out. Sure, it'd be my pleasure. Well, thank you again for uh, taking the time to to speak with me today. Okay, thank you, Carl. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to David Lesh for taking the time to talk with me today about his new book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. 
You can follow New Books and Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at New Books Mideast, as well as on Facebook. To send me your comments or to suggest an author or book for a future show, you can use the contact information on our website, newbooksinmiddleeasternstudies.com, where you can also find links to subscribe to our show. Also, if you enjoy the shows, please consider taking a moment to rate and review them on iTunes, which will help more people find our shows. Thank you for listening.